Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's exciting webinar. I am Tim Stark and the host of today's exciting event. I am a professor of civil engineering at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and technical director of the Fabricated Geomembrane Institute. This is our seventh webinar of 2020, and the remaining 10 webinars for 2020 have already been scheduled with great speakers and timely topics, which I will show you at on the last slide today. We're having a webinar every three weeks now instead of every four weeks, so we hope you can still join us. During today's webinar, we welcome questions and comments which can be typed into the questions box in the control panel. You may send in your questions at any time during the presentation and our speaker will address them at the end of today's presentation. The recording of this webinar and a PDF of the slides will be made available on the FGI website after today's presentation. PDH certificates will be sent automatically to all who attend the entire webinar. Today's webinar speaker is Mr. Eric Blonde. Eric is a consultant offering technical services in the geosynthetics and engineered construction material industries for the last two years. His key areas of expertise are soil filtration and drainage by geosynthetics, durability of geosynthetics and construction materials, geosynthetics lining systems and materials, and other applications of geosynthetics. Prior to starting his consulting firm, he worked with Sageos for about 23 years, so he has considerable hands-on experience with testing, specifications, and design of drainage composites. He has also been actively involved in several standardizations committees, such as chairing the ASTM subcommittee D3502 on geosynthetics durability, chairing the Canadian Mirror Committee of ISO TC21, and has served as the tech task leader for the development of several ISO test methods on flow capacity of drainage composites and ISO 18. 228-3 on designing geotextiles for filtration. The title of Eric's webinar today is Testing and Design of Drainage Geocomposites, which is a topic that has been requested by a number of our prior viewers. Eric, thank you for squeezing this webinar into your busy schedule and joining us from Montreal, Quebec. The webinar controls are all yours. Thank you, team. So you hear me, everything is uh, working well? Yes. Okay. So good morning, everybody. Good, uh, good morning, good afternoon for, for those of you who are in Europe. Uh, so today, as the team introduced, I'm going to present to you what I know about uh, testing and design of drainage geocomposites. So first thing first, why do we need to, to do so much uh, some testing on the geocomposite? If this wants to move, oh, okay, maybe here. Okay, so um, so first, uh, what I'm going to discuss the I'm first going to present the structure of a drainage geocomposite. So there are different products on the market. Uh, each of them have its own features, uh, properties. 
and how can we compare them on an equal basis? How can we say compare uh, the long-term flow that we can develop uh, out of ge uh, geocomposite, disregarding the details of the structure? But for that, we need to know what are the specifics of the structure and uh, how they behave. Uh, then I'm going to briefly present the design objectives. Uh, when we design a product for drainage, what do we want to achieve? Uh, then we'll go into determination, determination of the short-term flow capacity, what is seen on the, the specification sheets uh, when you, that you get from manufacturers, from suppliers. Uh, after that, we have an, the, the next concern is how to assess the long-term performance. So, of course, the products change over time. Uh, there are different degradation possibilities that can happen, and uh, all of them are taken into account by the various design methods. Uh, then I'm going to make a quick remark on the other design concerns which I'm not addressing today. Uh, and finally, we have a concluding remark. And of course, the very uh, what I'm looking forward to interact with you with questions and answers. So first thing first, uh, what is a drainage composite? Uh, what are we talking about today? Uh, first, it's a drainage core. It's, com it's composed of two key component, a drainage core, which is the component which is designed to convey the water from A to B. Second, there is a geotextile filter which separates the soil, uh, which is next to the geocomposites, from the core. So it avoids the soil particles to enter the core. It acts as a filter to preserve the integrity of the core on the long run. And the combination of both these components creates the drainage geocomposites. The, there are several cores available on the market. Uh, the most common, uh, this beautiful drawing you see on top left, I have better photos after, uh, shows a, a geonet uh, core. So it's a set of ribs uh, which are intersecting and creating some kind of spacer uh, which offers a volume for water to flow. Uh, then you have webs or mats, geomats, uh, which are random fibers uh, organized in different directions, in random direction, directions. So the, the, the intention is always the same. Maintain a thickness, a, a void, an air gap, uh, a void through which the water can flow. Uh, you have double cuspated or single cuspated sheets. Uh, these are very common in the building industry. It's actually the standard product for a drainage of foundation in the building industry. Uh, and they, they have to be designed just the same as any other product. Uh, you have uh, three-dimensional boxes, uh, geocomposites as well. So the, the geonet is composed of some kind of boxes. Uh, you have uh, multilinear drainage geocomposites, which are small pipes, which are confined between two geotextiles. So in that case, it's really a different type of product. Instead of having uh, the entire surface uh, covered by a drainage material, you have pipes with a higher flow capacity per, for each line, uh, which are capturing the flow and conveying elsewhere. And finally, you have structured geomembranes. There is, uh, so the, the geomembrane itself, that's for use in very specific application where you do have a geomembrane installed. So the geomembrane is developed with a structure that gives that makes a spacer when in contact with a geotextile or another geomembrane. So that's uh, the six different type of products that we we can see uh, regularly in the in our industry. So when we want to do some drainage, what are we trying to achieve? 
uh, we want to for a geocomposite to work well we want to maintain the water head within the thickness of the drainage geocomposites so the first thing to that we need to know is uh, how much water we're going to have uh, reaching this product so this is controlled essentially by the rain intensity so there are tables uh, building codes uh, for every region provide some data uh, on the intensity of rainfall with occurrence of uh, 20 years 100 years i don't know what uh, other aspects which are going to control the flow is the angle of the slope. So typically we consider that the gradient of water is equal to the angle of the slope. Uh, so a vertical product, like if you are installing a product on a building, on the, the wall, uh, outside of wall of a building, the gradient is one. So the direction of flow is vertical. The length of flow is equal to the water head between uh, for the length of flow. So the gradient is one. If you have a slope of uh, a two-person slope, so that means you have two meters difference of height over 100 meters length, this is a gradient of 0 0.02. The length of the slope, of course, is going to control the, the design because the more you go into the slope, the more you go into the product, the more water is accumulated coming from, the, from elsewhere. So the length of the slope cannot be infinite. It has to be, it is defined by the flow capacity, actually. And uh, all of that leads to a maximum flow capacity, which has to be put in relation with these other parameters. So when we do the design of a drainage geocomposite, what we must make sure is that the geocomposite never reaches saturation on a slope for a gravity drainage. Uh, the reason for that is that if you reach saturation in the geocomposite, then that means, obviously, that the water starts to flow in the direction of the slope within the soil veneer uh, on the slope. And that means you start to have instability developing in the soil. You start to have pore pressure uh, building up. Uh, up to some point, you're going to have, uh, you can have actually a water pressure pushing up the soil uh so and, and creating uh creating as a problem that we don't want to have and that can lead to that kind of situation uh so on this photo the actually i think this photo had no drainage at all which is what was even worse but the seepage of water into the soil veneer uh eventually led to the the, the soil being completely evacuated from the slope so that's exactly what we don't want to see uh, so overall, when we do the design of a drainage geocomposite, what we want to make sure is that the flow capacity of the geocomposite will exceed the expected flow of water reaching the geocomposite. And this value is determined by the site, by the environmental condition. You won't have the same uh, factors in uh, arid regions than you have in uh, humid regions. Uh, this all relates pretty much to the stand, to standard geotechnical design. There are some very interesting guidance provided in the in the new test method ISO 18228-4, uh, which is in press right now. It's uh, it's been completed about one or two years ago, but the time needed in the ISO process to to publish uh, standard is relatively long, and uh, there is lots of verification and so on. Uh, so the document is in press right now and will come out by the end of 2020. And what's really interesting is it's one of the first documents I see in the geocentric industry, which provides relatively good guidance on uh, on how to assess uh, the water flow, the flow capacity that must be 
met by the Georgia Composites. So, uh, G-Composites have been around for some time. Uh, there has been some failures, as you've seen on the photo I've just shown you. And, uh, of course, the industry has taken uh, immediate reaction to, to design, to develop design guidance. The first one was the Geosynthetic Institute, uh, and in 2001, they have published GRI GC8, Determination of the Allowable Flow Rate of a Drainage Geocomposite. This document is, uh, is widely used. It's actually probably still the most widely used uh, specification for designing geocomposites. It's, uh, it was uh, improved in 2018 by ASTM D7931, which is basically the same GRI document with additions, modification, upgrades, as we will see later. And uh, a similar work was done at the ISO level in Europe. Uh, and in 2020, uh, we will have the ISO 18228-4 on design uh, of drainage products for geosynthetics. All of these uh, design guidance are based on the same strategy. You define a safety factor, which is a ratio between the allowable flow rate provided by the product and the required flow rate, which is driven by the environmental condition. The safety of facti, uh, the factor of safety uh, must be greater than one always. Uh, otherwise, if it's lower than one, you're exposed to a failure. Uh, and uh, so that, that this strategy is really common to all the design methodology which are around. What are the differences, the key differences between the, those methodologies? So essentially, in GRI, the factor that were considered based on what was uh, understood and known at that time uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, the reduction factor that had to be considered were essentially creep, chemical clogging and biological clogging. For different reasons, uh, this situation, well, this situation has been working very well and I'm not aware of so many failures uh, when the product is well designed per, per GRI DC8. Uh, but still, for different reasons, uh, there was an interest in adding more consideration in the design. One of them was geotextile intrusion and we will get into that later. Uh, and geotextile intrusion was accounted for in ASTM D7931 in 2018. And finally, uh, any testing, any test has inherent viability. Uh, and in the ISO standard, uh, the, this, the proposition which was made by the work group was to also include a reduction factor for laboratory uncertainties uh, that should be taken in consideration uh, while designing uh, a system. So at the end, of, at the end uh, what we need to do to design a drainage composite, uh, we need to know what is the required flow capacity, which is determined by the site and environmental condition. Uh, we need to know the short-term flow capacity or transmissivity, uh, which is product-specific determined using different test methods, uh, and that's what we're going to discuss next. And uh, we need to define what are the reduction factors that must be applied to define the safety factor uh, for this particular design. So, first thing first, short-term transitivity. Uh, there is basically two test methods which are used in the industry for uh, designing drainage geocomposites, which are ASTM D4716, which is really focused on the transmissivity. 
So the transmissivity is a factor that I'm going to present in the next slide. And we have the ISO uh, 12958, which is the test method for water flow capacity. In the ISO world, they don't like the concept of transmissivity uh, for good reasons, I think. Uh, so they prefer to analyze directly the flow capacity. So they don't want to in integrate the gradient in the calculation. They want to go directly to the flow. So ASTM D4716 was indeed developed considering that the flow uh, within a drainage geocomposite uh, follows Darcy's law, which means it, there is a, a constant relation between the flow and the hydraulic gradient. Uh, and so the test method defines the transmissivity uh, as the relation between the flow and the gradient. How do so the way it, the test is done, which is the same for ISO and ASTM, is that we have a specimen with a given length and given width, and we apply a hydraulic gradient between upstream and downstream of the specimen. So we control the waterhead, we measure the flow through the specimen, and eventually we can calculate the transmissivity, which is the flow divided by the width divided by the hydraulic gradient under a set of given conditions which is the normal load, the boundary condition, and the sitting time. So this is a general concept for determination of uh, the short-term properties ASTM 4716 or ISO 12958. Now, I was telling you that uh, people in the ISO world prefer to use directly the flow capacity instead of the transmissivity. The reason for that is that Darcy's law does not apply to the flow in drainage geocomposites. So you see in this little cartoon here, the blue line shows what we know for soils. For soils, there is a hydraulic gradient and there is a, a flow which is going to be directly related to the hydraulic gradient and the surface and so on. For geocomposites, uh, what has been proven actually in the late uh, 80s and 90s, uh, by my friend Pietro Rimoldi, I think, if I'm correct, uh, he has identified that there is a relation which connects the square root of the gradient with the flow. So, in other words, the higher the gradient, the lower the transmissivity. It doesn't mean that the flow is lower, it means the transmissivity is a parameter calculated uh, with the test is lower. So if you look at, uh, at the transmissivity, of course, the flow continues to increase, but the uh, transmissivity decreases. So, uh, and this can be an order of magnitude of difference. If you look on the right-hand side, you have in, in a linear scale, you see a relation, which is a, a true relation, uh, between the gradient and the transmissivity. So for very low gradient, you can have a transmittability which is one order of magnitude higher than for high gradients like one. Uh, what I'm using very often as a rule of thumb, uh, which is consistent with, uh, with the equation you see there, is that every time you have an increase of hydraulic gradient of two orders of magnitude, you have a decrease of transmissivity of one order of magnitude. In other words, you, when you have a two orders of magnitude increase of hydraulic gradient, you have only one order of magnitude increase of flow, uh, of flow rate. 
so no influence of the normal load. Uh, so by the way, you can see here on the right hand side the relation between the gradient and the flow, which is always increasing. The higher the gradient, the higher the water flow. For normal load, when you increase the normal load, you have a polymeric, uh, polymeric product, which is uh, there, a plastic core, and the plastic core tends to compress, to react to the load and to reduce the void space available for flow. So when you increase the normal load, you will decrease the transmissivity and decrease the water flow as well. So overall, when you look at the properties of a drainage composite, how uh, is the transmissivity influenced by hydraulic gradient and normal load? The transmissivity will decrease with the, as the hydraulic gradient increase, and it will decrease as the normal load increase. So all this complexity, it sounds uh, a bit complex, and that's the reason why in the ISO world, I prefer to, to limit the discussion to the water flow and not include transmissivity in the discussion. So now, influence of the type of core. Uh, so with uh, all these properties that I'm describing, they are definitely influenced by the type of core. For To stick to what is the most common type of product sold in, uh, on the market, which is a geonet geocomposite, so even if we limit to the biplanar geonet geocomposite, you have different type of structure for the biplanar. Some geonets have a relatively high strength, uh, uh, which develop a, a much better, a very good uh, flow capacity on the short term and under uh, low loads. But when you increase the load, they tend to roll over. So you see this uh, mechanism here. In the initial condition with low loads, you have the angle of the two strands, which is uh, relatively vertical. And when you increase the load, uh, this trend that you can see here may tend to bend. So that is reflected by, the, by a compression test, uh, a compressive test. So here you have some graph showing a compressive test. When you increase the compression, you, uh, when you increase the stress, you, you, you tend to have uh, uh, to lose some thickness very quickly. So uh, while some other products which have a more stable structure, like this one, which has a rounded strands, uh, these rounded strands will compress still, so there is, there is still an influence of the, of the load, but the, this influence is much lower. So you should not consider that it's going to be the same behavior for any product. Uh, some products will lose a lot of flow capacity with, uh, with the increase of normal loads, some others will not lose so much flow capacity. Example of uh, value that, uh, that we have developed many years ago, here you have a triplanar geonet. Uh, you have a rounded strand uh, geonet here. Uh, and uh, finally, you have a standard geonet with uh, relatively standard strands. And uh, so don't, several products can have different range of, uh, of capacity. But here we took three products which had relatively similar flow capacity at the big, uh, under low loads. And we've increased the normal load. And you can see that the difference between the transmissivity at uh, relatively high load, 15, 1200 kPa, uh, the, the difference is huge. It's one order of magnitude. So depending on the structure, you can lose up to one order of magnitude. Uh, you can have up to one order of magnitude difference between the properties of the product.
Another factor which is going to affect the, the flow capacity of drainage composite is the boundary condition and the geotextile intrusion. When you have a product with uh, two geotextiles confining the void space and uh, a net in between, if, if this product is between two rigid boundaries, like between two G-membranes, for example, or between concrete and uh, another G-membrane, <coughs> sorry, uh, you, you will not have any geotextile intrusion. So you will not really lose any flow uh, for geotextile intrusion. But then when you have one side which is uh, soil and the other side which is rigid, you start to have some penetration of the geotextile uh, into the void space. And when you have the two sides, of course, you have much more loss of, uh, of uh, void space and thus uh, flow capacity. So I have another photo if it wants to come. Voila. Here, example of a bipanar geonet under load uh, confined between soils. You see that the soil is basically taking all the void space. So this type of product, uh, when it, if it's tested and specified considering rigid boundaries, uh, the value that you're going to consider in the design has nothing to do with what is going to be actually delivered on site. Uh, so that's why the soil intrusion into the void space must be considered uh, as a significant factor reducing the capacity of uh, geocomposites. When you have box-shaped products, uh, they behave completely differently. So a box-shaped product, like you can see actually uh, this photo here, in the middle, which describes that type of product, uh, these products will maintain a much higher, uh, are much better at maintaining the void space between the two geotextiles. So these products are much less sensitive to geotextile intrusion than our bipanar geonet, for example. Same for tripanar geonets. Uh, tripanar are behaving pretty much like this one. Uh, they're much better at preserving the flow capacity uh, with geotextile intrusion. Okay, so it sounds like uh, all the, we should always use triplanar or box shape. Actually, maybe not always. There is one factor that makes biplanar geocomposites better than triplanar geocomposites or box shaped uh, geocomposites. It is the flow, uh, perpendicular flow. In the the, the biplanar have a better multi-direction flow than triplanar or box shaped. There was a study made in the early 2000s and they've measured the flow capacity in uh, the direction of the triplanar or biplanar geocomposite, and they've measured what's left in a perpendicular direction or with a uh, 45 degrees angle. And they found that for a triplanar, they published these numbers, which are specific to a product which was on the market back then, but the concept is correct. Uh, they found that if you look at 100% in the direction of flow, in the main direction of flow, you can have as little as 18% remaining uh, in a perpendicular direction. And I think my personal opinion is that this 18% is probably on the high end of what you can actually have left. Uh, now, if you look at the biplanar geocomposite, you can have up to 40% remaining in a perpendicular direction. So. Uh, this is okay. Uh, it can be handled. It all depends on the specifics of the project. The, the one thing that must be well understood uh, when using triplanar or box shaped geocomposites is that on the at the time of installation, uh, another factor that must be very well understood is that the direction of flow of the geocomposite 
must be exactly the same as, a, as the, the slope. You cannot have a deviation, otherwise you're going to lose some capacity because of the orientation of the product versus the slope. Uh, is it coming? Voilà. Uh, sitting time now. Uh, so we went through different geotechnical uh, intrusion. Now sitting time. Uh, products are sensitive to creep uh, of, on the long run. Creep takes place in uh, multiple stages. There is a primary creep that we could actually call sitting time. Then there is a secondary creep uh, over which the product loses some thickness over time because it's a polymer, it's a polymer, it's sensitive to creep. Uh, and finally, there is a tertiary creep which comes at the very end where the product collapses completely, may collapse completely. In the geosynthetic industry, there's been quite some discussion about what should be the sitting time and how it should be selected to have a proper uh, evaluation of the product. In, in Europe, the decision that was taken with the ISO standards is to limit the sitting time to six minutes, to a very short time, uh, while in North America, the preference is to go toward longer sitting time, uh, typically 15 minutes or 100 hours, we'll see that later. Uh, so, it's a question, it's a matter of choice. Uh, I have an opinion on that, we'll discuss later, but uh, eventually what we have to remember is that the sitting time will affect the test results. Uh, uh, the longer the sitting time, the more chains we can capture uh, primary creep-driven failures, but it does, increasing the, the sitting time for a very long time does not uh, does not prevent from having some a creep failure on the long run. It only addresses the primary creep failure. Uh, it, it might be missed uh, if we have a too short-term creeping time, creep time, sitting time, uh, but uh, we still need to evaluate long-term creep time, sit time. So, at the end, for repeatability, for consistency, it's always better to use longer creep time, uh, sit, sitting time, sorry. Uh, so for design, when you perform the design of a structure, it's better to specify 100 hours sitting time. We'll see that uh, after. Uh, it offers better repeatability and it completely uh, takes away the primary creep from the equation which has the highest influence. On the other hand, uh, for quality control, for MQC and construction quality control, requiring 100 hours uh, sit sitting time is extremely long, can be very expensive, uh, and uh, can be, it can be really complex to, to manage on, on, on a job site. 100 hours is a bit more than four days. If you add to that uh, shipping to the testing lab, uh, if you, uh, you know, reaction and waiting time, normal waiting time, conditioning, uh, you very easily get to one or two weeks turnaround time per test. And uh, if you have 10, 10, 10 tests to do, which is maybe not a lot, uh, that means the lab should have 10 different equipment only for your project. It's not going to happen. So, uh, 100 hours uh, sitting time for specification, for quality control, it's, it's not realistic. Uh, 
so that, that's why we have these two different uh, options long sitting time for design when you when you plan a project uh, and short sitting time for mqc and cqc manufacturing and construction quality control so at the end when we want to evaluate uh, short-term properties of uh, geocomposite we have different factors which can affect the measurement we have the hydric gradient so again, we have a product which is not uh, following a Darcyian flow. So we must perform the test according to the hydro ingredients that we're going to use. Uh, and we cannot compare results made developed with two different hydro ingredients. They do not compare. We have the normal load. So the higher the normal load, the higher compression of the product uh, and uh, the lower the transmissivity the, uh, or, and the flow usually. We have the boundary condition, a product tested between two rigid plates does not deliver the same hydraulic properties than a product tested between soft boundaries or soil. And we have the sitting time. Uh, the longer the sitting time, the deeper into primary creep you go and uh, the lower the transmissivity usually. So. Uh, each and every type of core filter combination behaves differently. So, uh, voilà. So that's uh, that's really the short-term for the short-term properties. That's really the main thing that we have to remember. Every test reflects uh, the test condition. Every test result reflects the test conditions that were selected to perform the test. Uh, and yeah, I've discussed uh, transmissivity and water flow differences. So, uh, I'm going to go just a little bit deeper in the differences between the two test methods, ISO and uh, ASTM uh, D4716. ISO 12958 has uh, experienced significant revisions uh, until 2020. We Actually, I should have written 2019 because in November 19, we had the plenary meeting in Beijing where the, it was decided to go for publication of, this, of the two test methods. Uh, so, until 2010, uh, there, had, there was only one test method, ISO 12958, uh, which is going to be continued uh, as 12958-1 uh, as of 2020. For this test method, we had three, it was mandatory to test per three normal loads, 20, 100, and 200 kPa. So practically, it was not really possible to test under any other normal load. Uh, if you have, uh, if you're designing a tailing facility with a 1500 kPa active uh, load, uh, the ISO test method was not offering an option for that. There was two hydraulic gradients, 0 0.1 and 1, so it's always mandatory. The boundary conditions were, uh, mandatory boundary conditions were to use closed cell EPDM foam. Uh, so that was to take in consideration the geotextile intrusion into the core. And the sitting time was 360 seconds, which is six minutes. Uh, so this needed some, some improvement. Uh, the 360 seconds remains in the new test method. I have personally lots of questions for that because I think sometimes the duration of the flow measurement is more than 360 seconds. 
but uh, but that's uh, what the committee has decided where we stick to, to these conditions another factor which is interesting is the, which is important to point is the dimension of the of the box the ISO 12958 authorizes, and actually many of the testing apparatus which are in Europe are only 200 millimeters wide, not 300 millimeters as we are doing in North America. Uh, and this has an impact on the flow measurement. Like if you have a biplanar geonet and if you have a narrow box, the water will be directed by the ribs uh, to the walls of the box. And when you have uh, a shape factor which is uh, which is high, when the width is much lower than the length, in that case 1.5 times lower, uh, then you have it will affect the flow that you will measure. Some publication was made about five ten years ago quantifying this, uh, but anyway, that's another discussion. So uh, the ISO 12958 is defined like that. Uh, now there is a new performance test which was introduced with uh, for flow measurements. It's ISO 12958-2, uh, which is going to be introduced in 2020, and this one gives much more possibilities. Uh, you can uh, you can use normal loads uh, according to the project specification. So like if you need to test at uh, 1500 kPa, 2000 kPa, it's not a problem. You can use uh, any hydraulic gradients uh, needed. And you have a proposition to use to, of some default hydraulic gradients. Uh, same for boundary condition and uh, very important, the sitting time, which is increased to up to 100 hours uh, as a default proposition. We keep the same box to perform the test. So now, if we look at uh, ASTM D4716, in general, the test method is uh, is uh, very scientific. It's a very open testing strategy which is proposed. It provides a lot of guidance for selection of test conditions uh, with some default test conditions, but you have to read between the lines to to, to understand exactly what is uh, specified there. Uh, it is typically used for both performance testing and MQC. So what is specific to D4716 uh, as a comparison with the ISO? The normal load, uh, uh, the normal load uh, which are proposed are much higher. It goes up to 1,000 kPa, much higher than what is proposed in 12958. Hydraulic gradients, the default propositions go from 0 0.05 to 1, uh, with typical uh, gradients of 0. 0.1 or 1 uh, used. Boundary conditions uh, are rigid or closed cell EPDM foam. And the default condition is rigid to rigid with the claim that is going to improve the repeatability of the test, which is correct. Uh, and the sitting time is 15 minutes. So you see there are minor differences between the two test methods, uh, ISO and the 4716. Now you have the for the performance testing, it's pretty much the same as for ISO. One thing which is a bit different, it's there, there are scientific considerations for the sitting time. Uh, the current wording in the method is you have to consider compression test data, blah blah, which nobody does ever. Uh, practically, when it's for design for performance testing, it's going to be 100 hours. Dimension of the box is one foot by one foot, as I mentioned before. So if we compare side by side, 
12958 with D4716. Uh, overall, the methods are similar. So normal loads, it's uh, it's, a, it's a bit lower than 12 in 12958 than it is in uh, 4716. Hydric gradient, very often we see requests uh, for MQC or CQC with very low gradients. One of the reasons for that is that the lower the gradient, the higher the transmissivity because of what I explained before uh, of the calculation trick. So when you publish a value with a very low gradient, you show a value, a trans transmitti transmissivity value, which is higher. Uh, so the same product tested at 0.02 will exhibit a transmissivity which can be two, three, four times higher than uh, at 0 0.1 uh, gradient. So for commercial reasons, it's very good to use lower hydraulic gradients. Uh, boundary conditions now. Uh, I saw uh, uh, for MQC, uh, the, the test method requires soft, soft, so foam, foam boundaries. Practically, what we see on the market uh, is that people are using rigid boundaries, just the same as uh, ESTM D4760. So it's a ad hoc modification to the to the test method, which is adopted by the entire industry, and by the way, which was corrected in the 2020 edition of the ISO method. What has not changed is the sitting time. So the ISO method uh, requires a sitting time of six minutes while ASTM is requiring 15 minutes. Practical implication of that is that uh, results, all the other conditions being the same, results obtained with the ISO methods are likely to be slightly higher than, uh, slightly higher or equal than the results obtained using ASTM D4716. Now, if we look at performance testing, at the end, it's, uh, it's pretty much the same. The, the new ISO method reflects pretty much the ASCM T4716 method. I want to add something. Uh, there was, uh, I think, two weeks ago, uh, the approval of a modification to the ASCM D4716, which allows to do thickness-driven tests, which is another thing which is going to be very interesting we'll see after. So now let's enter long-term performance of the geocomposite. So again, uh, so what I'm going to focus on now is a reduction factor for creep, chemical clogging, biological clogging, geotextile intrusion, and uh, laboratory. Creep is for creep deformation, uh, chemical clogging, that's what I just said. In the, uh, first thing first, what are we talking about in terms of reduction factor? If we look at the recommendations which are published in the ISO 18228-4, which is in press right now, uh, you have these indicative ranges that you can see on the, on the screen right now. So it goes from 1 to 2 for geotextile intrusion, a 1 to 6 for creep, 1 to 1.5 for chemical clogging, 1 to 1.3 for uh, biological clogging, and for laboratory, we add another one, which is 1 to 1.5. Overall, if you do the, if you multiply all these reduction factor as requested by the method, you end up with a global reduction factor, which can be anything between 1 and 35. So that's a lot. Uh, that's just to show the influence of these factors. 
uh, I, I want to mention that the, the biggest reduction comes from creep with up to six as a reduction factor. So creep becomes a, a critical parameter to, to understand. So geotextile intrusion, um, the reduction factor for uh, geotextile intrusion, so that's to account for the additional geotextile intrusion that will come after the test is being performed. So that's going to depend on the fabric, uh, essentially. So when you have a woven geotextile used uh, for the, um, for the, as, a, as a geotextile, the intrusion will be lower and the reduction, uh, the creep reduction of the intrusion uh, reduction will be also typically lower than for a non-woven. Uh, you also have some products are sold on the market, uh, like cuspated sheets, which are used for building application. They typically use heat-bonded geotextiles. Heat-bonded have much lower uh, geotextile intrusion in the beginning, uh, just because they are stiffer. And uh, on the long run, they also behave differently. So that's, uh, that's something interesting. Okay. Uh, and the other factor is the biological clogging. So here you can see two photos, one uh, which has been used by Kerner, which comes from, uh, which has been, I think, taken by Kerner, George, uh, George or Bob Kerner, I'm not sure. Uh, so it comes from a field observation. Uh, they, they observe this, uh, the presence of roots uh, as a major uh, reduction of the flow capacity of the product. On the right-hand side, it's a, it's a testing evaluation. So actually, I was in, I've done this project uh, many years ago. It's, uh, we had some leachate artificially circulated, uh, pumped into uh, the test equipment to monitor the change of flow on the long run. Um, so the type of, uh, the biological plugging which can develop in a drainage composite depends a lot of, on the environmental condition. You will obviously not have the same problems for roadways as what you have for uh, landfills. So, GRI GC8 and ISO 12, 12, uh, 228-4 provide some guidance on uh, the values of uh, clogging reduction factor. What's interesting is that there is no test method available for determination of this value, so we really have to piggyback on the existing publication by GRI and ISO to select these numbers. And uh, voila. Some Literature, including myself, questions the relevance of these numbers and the fact they are universal. Uh, we did some uh, some studies. So, as I said, uh, some years ago, we we were on a landfill. We used the landfill arriving in the in in the monitoring laboratory of the of the facility, and we pumped this leachate into some test cell and we monitored. Uh, the, the behavior. So this was published uh, by Eigenzau and myself back in 2012 at Eurogeo in Valencia. Um, so what we found is that in the condition we've used, we had some reduction factor that we could calculate that would be anywhere between 2.5 and 10, depending on the products. So if we had a geonet without any geotextile between two geomembranes, it would be obviously much less sensitive to uh, to biological clogging. If we had a geocomposite with geotextile and uh, with a reduced flow volume in, in the beginning, 
obviously there was a higher propension uh, for bacterial attachment onto a surface within the core, uh, and that would lead to higher clogging, uh, higher reduction. And different structure would behave differently as well. A biplanar would not behave the same as biplanar because of the turbulence, because of the of the geometry of the cavity at the end. So that uh, that's why the we had lots of questions about the relevance of these numbers. However, I like to be the devil advocate, so I'm going to look at things the other way around as well. We also have to consider what are the actual needs when we define the biological reduction factor. When we design a landfill, uh, which is the, the situation which is the most critical for uh, biological clogging, when we design a landfill, we design the flow capacity considering the entire surface of the landfill exposed to rain, the highest rain occurrence. Let's assume that this rain is going to happen before, uh, just at the end of the construction. Then the water accessing the drain, so the drainage composites, will be 100%, whatever is this number. Then let's enter the operation. So at that time, it's still only clean water reaching the product. When we start to enter operation, we start to fill the landfill with waste. That means there is a layer of material which is likely to generate uh, biological activity thus uh, clogging. But overall, uh, it's also an absorption layer. So the, this layer of waste will retain some liquid that will never reach basically the, the drain unless it's raining, it's pouring rain for two weeks, which rarely happens. Uh, and so there is uh, a fraction of this water, this rain, which is going to be absorbed, which is going to evaporate. And the more waste goes into the landfill, the less flow will actually access the drain. Eventually, after some time, we're going to install a geomembrane cover on top of this waste. So at that time, there won't be any more infiltration from the top. It's good. It's or much less. Uh, most of the liquid reaching the the drainage layer is going to be coming from leaks, from uh, side infiltration, if any, uh, and different things. But at the end, uh, some study made in France uh, back in the early 2000s showed that the flow reaching the drainage composite after closure of a landfill was about 500 times lower than it was right after construction. So that means we already have a safety factor, a reduction factor, a safety or reduction factor of 500, uh, just because of the normal operation of the of the landfills. So to make a long story short, for biological clogging, I think there is no one-fits-all answer. Uh, we need to define uh, what we have, what are the conditions, and choose a reduction factor based on, on what's happening there. Uh, I want to mention as well that uh, I tried to develop uh, ASTM guide uh, and test method as well in 2015 to determine the reduction factor for biological clogging, and that was a failed attempt. Uh, I will confess uh, it was not possible to find a consensus within the industry. So we, we really have to look at the actual condition of operation within a project. Uh, to be able to uh, assess in a way uh, or another the reduction factor for clogging. Creep now, uh, and I think I'm running pretty much out of time. 
so as I said, polymeric material will creep when exposed to a constant stress. So primary creep takes place at the very beginning when we install the load. Uh, everything takes its place. Uh, the, the product starts to compress until it reaches its strength somehow. Uh, and that's what happens, we hope, before the first 100 hours of testing. Then after that, you have the secondary creep where the molecular change into the material takes place. So the molecules are reorganizing every, uh, their place and they are slowly uh, changing position, uh, which as an impact decreases the thickness the cavity available for flow. Finally, uh, when this arrangement reach a limit, which is not always the case, some product never reach tertiary creep, you can have a failure. Uh, that when, uh, then when the structure of the product is no longer capable of handling the, the load. Then you have tertiary creep, you have failure, which is what you don't want to see. So uh, there's been many studies, but the one which is interesting and I've elected to, uh, to report is the one which was developed by BAM in Germany and which is reported in ISO 18224-4, uh, which is coming this year. Uh, for this study to assess uh, what is going to be the residual thickness, uh, residual flow, I'm sorry, uh, for the drainage composite, it takes to know the creep deformation uh, behavior of the product under the service load, the anticipated service load or a higher load. So we're going to have a curve uh, correlating the thickness versus time for a given load. It takes to have a short-term compressive test and uh, a short-term flow test, which is driven by what I'm going to explain. Uh, ISO 18228-4 also suggests typical lifetimes for determination of uh, reduction, creep reduction factor. For temporary structure, it's one to five years, and uh, for retaining wall tunnel, it's up to 100 years. And you see here, landfills are only 30 to 50 years. Uh, and I think these numbers make sense considering the, what I said before about the presence of a capping system and uh, avoid overestimation of the needs. So uh, the technique which is uh, recommended for creep, uh, for determination of the long-term flow capacity, uh, including creep reduction factor, is basically to to take a test, so the crit test, the thickness dependent test. So you, you see for a given product, we have the time here, the thickness, that is a creep test. For different loads, so uh, sigma one, you, uh, which is the lightest load here, uh, you see the thickness is higher and doesn't change as much. And the more you increase the load, the more you have uh, initial deflection of the product and the uh, quicker it decreases in uh, thickness. So you enter this curve, which is to be provided by the manufacturer, of course. Uh, you enter the time, the design time, and you see what is going to be the thickness, the expected thickness of the core at that time. Then you have a relation, which is uh, so a short-term compress compression test, which is correlating the normal load with the thickness. 
So this short-term compression test allows to define what can be the pressure that we can use to perform a transmissivity test and uh, obtain uh, immediate flow capacity after deformation under the under a given load. So it's a thickness-driven uh, test at the end of the day. So once we have uh, defined this pressure, we can perform a flow capacity test under the, uh, under the pressure recommended and obtain a flow capacity. So that's a very interesting way to uh, to address uh, to determine the flow capacity uh, after a very long term based on a set of CRIP data, a short-term compressive uh, test, and a flow capacity uh, method. What I want to highlight is that uh, the new ASTM D4716 is actually doing something even better. It skips this, uh, this equation, this transition here. It goes directly from thickness to flow in the sense that it allows to perform the test under a predefined thickness. So that's very interesting. Uh, it was a proof that I said like two weeks ago. It's not in my presentation because it's very recent. Uh, and that may facilitate even uh, uh, this determination of long-term uh, flow performance. How do we get to creep, uh, to creep tests, to creep data? The archaic method, method I will say, is uh, uh, the method where we load the product under constant load. So we have a weight, we load the product, and you can see here, we monitor thickness, or here, we monitor thickness under a given load for a very long time. These tests are extremely long. It takes when we specify a 10,000 hours uh, test, it's one year and two months. If we say, okay, let's go simple and uh, limit ourselves to 1,000 uh, hours, that's still 40 days. That's way too long. Uh, practically, it's impossible to use this test and to test up to the end of the service life of product. It's completely impossible. So to address that, uh, the industry has developed the SIM test, accelerated creep test, uh, which is an ASTM standard since many years, uh, D7361. In this test method, we use temperature to accelerate creep. So uh, there is a, a whole science which is behind that. I'm really running out of time, so I have to, to accelerate my uh, rhythm. But basically, to make long story short, you can project within a 24 hours long test, a one day test, you can project duration over 100 years. And the really good thing is that you can do that for an actual service temperature, uh, which is not the case for the uh, basic quick test. With the SIM test, you can say, okay, the temperature of service is gonna be 35 Celsius. So let's see what is gonna be the resonance thickness uh, after 100 years and 35 Celsius. So you can play with these numbers. It's, it's really extremely performant to, uh, to assess uh, very long-term properties of drainage geocomposites. So that's a typical result for a SIM test. You have the retained thickness, you have the creep modulus, and you can basically determine what is the, creepness, the thickness reduction after any duration. So you see here 100 years, you could theoretically go to 1,000 years, but it makes no sense after. So, Hey, Eric, you've got, um, it's about noon. You've got about four slides left. How, how, can you wrap up in a minute or two? Yes. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm doing that. Uh, yeah. So creep reduction factor, uh, example of creep reduction factor, which are published in the ISO method, it goes from basically for a geomat, 
it goes from a little bit above one under low load and uh, low lifetime, but and it can go up to six for much harsher conditions. Uh, I think I will skip the influence of the tangent stress, which is another consideration, which is uh, actually very important when you have a, a standard uh, geonet. But uh, if anybody's interested, you can call me. I can go there. Reduction factor again. So I've presented you what's in the ISO method. Geomat will have a reduction factor of typically 1 to 6. Uh, Biplanar geonet can be typically 1.3. Uh, you see also the difference in duration and normal loads, by the way, and all the numbers are going to be affected by this consideration and temperature. Uh, Triplanar can be, is typically lower, 1.1, box type 1.1. Tubular drainage geocomposite, which I did not really discuss in detail today. Uh, typically, the manufacturer claim they can, they don't need to consider creep, uh, and I've contributed to some papers stating that. Uh, so, uh, value of RFCR of 1 can be considered in many cases under specific conditions. So, overall, the short-term flow capacity will depend on the structure and properties of the product, boundary condition, normal load, hydraulic gradient, and sitting time. That's uh, what I presented in the beginning of my presentation. And the long-term performance will depend on the short-term flow capacity, which is defined here as well as creep, biological and chemical clogging, uh, and other factors, geotechnical intrusion and so on, uh, which are typically included in there. What I've not covered in this presentation, and which is important uh, in real-life design, viscosity of the liquid. When you have a liquid which is more viscous, uh, it may affect the flow capacity. Dynamic and cyclic loading, not addressed at all. Polymer aging, we, I've seen a very limited number of specifications requiring OIT and uh, stress cracking of the polymer, but typically uh, this is not really addressed for this product. Uh, capillary breaks, which are another is another discussion and any extreme projects. And finally, the other relevant design concern for drainage composites, the ge geotextile and UV resistance. This is very often a primary source of failure. Uh, when the product is not covered immediately or very quickly, uh, it, it, it's an issue. Filtration properties of the geotextile and consideration related to the structure. So veneer stability, interface shear strength, gravel puncture, and so on. So, um, yeah, drainage decomposite uh, offer an excellent solution compared to gravel for all the reasons. And that's a discussion which is common to any geosynthetics. Consistency, performance, sustainability. Sustainability is a big, big hammer uh, in favor of geosynthetics. Uh, constructability, greenhouse gases emission, uh, and very good scientific uh, knowledge around the product. But at the end of the day, we should never forget that uh, deficient drainage is typically a root cause in the failure of man-made structures. It's, uh, I think everybody uh, listening to me today knows at least one situation where drainage was a cause of failure. Uh, there is a variety of products, and they all have different properties, and they must be assessed individually. You cannot take a set of results and transfer it to the next product. Impossible. So at the end, 
consult a specialist, which can be the manufacturer uh, or a consultant, to make sure that you, when you perform a design, you have a cross-examination of uh, critical factors. There are lots of people who are very competent out there, and uh, you should really use them. So that's uh, that's all for me. So I'm uh, behind schedule. I by five minutes. I'm sorry about that. By a bit more than five minutes. Thank you, Eric. Um, because we're a little over time, um, I want to get, tell everybody that we'll be conducting a follow-up podcast with Eric on Thursday, June 18th, this Thursday. So please send any additional questions via the webinar survey that you will be sent shortly after the webinar concludes. And Eric will address these additional questions in the podcast on Thursday. For those of you that have time, uh, I'm going to try to run through a few questions. Um, Eric, uh, can you go to the next slide? Yes. This has contact information for Eric, myself, and Jen Miller. If if you want to send us questions uh, directly, Eric, can you go to the next slide? Our next webinar is by Andrew Mills on packaging, handling, and storage of geosynthetics. That's Thursday, July 9th at noon Central Time, and there'll be some announcements of that. Finally, the last slide gives you some information on the FGI website. All of the podcasts and webinars are available on the FGI website. You can go in, listen to a webinar, and if you complete the entire webinar, you will receive a PDH certificate for that, as well as some pond leakage calculator, cost calculators, photos, technical papers, etc., on the FGI website. So with those announcements, uh, and we're over time, let's go down to some questions. If you need to leave, that's great. You can tune into our podcast, which will be recorded next Thursday. So Eric, uh, I'm just gonna pick out some of these questions. Um, there has been an issue with clogging of the upper textile in a geocomposite. What is the solution or how do we limit this issue? Okay, that's an interesting question. The, I think the, the understanding how the clogging took place is very important. Uh, I, was, uh, I, I was very happy to be elected to, to drive the development of ISO 18228-3, not 4, for filtration design. And uh, so while gathering information and producing first drafts at the end, we realized that installation is a key factor which may affect the performance of a geotextile filter. If the geotextile filter is covered immediately by soil uh, without uh, any dust, rain, uh, mud or slurry flowing onto the fabric, usually it's going to perform very well, per the design at least. Uh, if, uh, the, if the geotextile is covered after some rain event, very often what's going to happen is that you're going to have some the, the erosion of soils which are nearby, which is going to flow into the onto the product, and which tend to to clog the fabric on on the surface. So what I'm describing is specific to some configuration. Of course, it does not happen everywhere, but uh, installation is a key factor. Second factor is. Uh, to have obviously a proper design of the soil geotextile compatibility uh, and that would really have to be analyzed with respect to the specific uh, condition of the project. But answer is in two directions. First, 
installation, how was the installation made. Second, uh, it's not uh, ranked by order of importance, by the way. Uh, second, the design of the soil geotextile compatibility. Okay, thank you, uh, Eric. Next is, uh, how do you feel about the use of ATV vehicles, you know, the four-wheel ATV vehicles, to, tra to traverse or cross over deployed geocomposites and geotextiles? Oh. <laughs> that was a tricky one. I, I, I don't have a fixed opinion on that. Uh, I, I, I need to understand better the situation and the configuration. I cannot answer that question. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, next is, what is your recommending recommendation for testing a geocomposite? Uh, test the individual layers or test the sandwich of the layers. Uh, so I guess if it was, say, a leak detection zone, put the GCL primary geomembrane above it and a compacted soil underneath of it. Uh, how, how would you handle the testing? Okay, if I understand well uh, how to test in the lab for transmissivity uh, geocomposite uh, to obtain a representative flow value, is this correct? Yes. I would definitely recommend to use uh, something as close as possible to what is used on site. So, and to, to stop reproduction of this system where it has no longer any influence. So, uh, in that case, if you have a GCL, geomembrane, geocomposite, and soil, or another geomembrane uh, on top, uh, I would recommend to use exactly this structure. Uh, so, GCL, geomembrane, that means you need to wrap everything to avoid leakage uh, through the through the GCL, of course. Uh, but make sure that the boundary condition reflects what's going to be on site. What is very often done is to have only the geomembrane installed because it's much easier. And to put the geocomposite on top and the soil on top, uh, that's definitely one solution that is very common to, commonly done. Uh, but if it's under very high load and there is some concern that the gym membrane could deform into the composite, which is not really a good design, uh, then probably it's better to include the GCL into the, the structure. Yep. Um, next, uh, is the non-woven spun bonded geotextile suitable for use as the outer filter fabric or upper filter fabric of a drainage composite or what would you recommend? Uh, I think depends on the manufacturing technology. Uh, for cuspated sheets, uh, which I use in the bullying industry, it's probably, I think it's always uh, heat bonded fabrics which are uh, installed on the core. The reason for that is that in the manufacturing process, it's easy to apply the fabric immediately after extrusion of the dimple sheets. So the adhesion between the fabric and the core is immediate and is not questionable. It's very good adhesion. When uh, it's a GeoNet geocomposite which is manufactured, the process which allows to laminate together the core and the geotextile is a second process. So first, the core is extruded. Second, the fabric is uh, is uh, heat bonded typically to the core. So that means there is a reheating of the core and you apply the fabric on the reheated core. 
so this secondary process is the source of many discussions. Uh, the regularity of the process is not ideal. Uh, there is an excellent paper by Rick Thiel, which was published uh, last year, uh, on this, where he proposed some quality control uh, strategy to address this. Uh, so at the end of the day, a heat-bonded fabric, the problem is that the adhesion in this secondary process, reaching a good adhesion between the heat-bonded fabric and the polyethylene core, which is typically polyethylene, uh, is extremely difficult. Uh, the chances to burn the fabric, to have no adhesion, are very high uh, with the technique which are used nowadays. If it were a different uh, welding mechanism between the fabric and the core than heat, uh, maybe that would open some perspectives uh, and then it would be really super interesting. You know, I would love to see a heat bonded fabric on top of a geonet. That's what's going to give the best flow capacity. Yep. But right now, right now it's really manufacturing, which is a limiting factor for this application. Yep. Uh, here's, a, here's another one question, uh, sort of after uh, one of my areas of interest. Why is elevated temperatures in a landfill not considered as a reduction factor like biological clogging, creep, and the other reduction factors you covered? Uh, I don't know if this question was uh, requested before I speak of creep, but with the seam uh, technique, you can actually in include uh, temperature in the, in the discussion. Uh, you have to look at how the temperature will affect uh, the different reduction mechanisms. So for biological clogging, the, the the values that we're using now are anyway tabulated. They are not experimental. Uh, I'm not aware, uh, except for the study I've done, I'm not aware of strong studies uh, on biological clogging. So it's really tabulated based on experience, based on consensus by the Geosynthetic Institute. is definitely uh, the, the organization which has proposed the, the values which are commonly used nowadays. Uh, and to my understanding, they consider temperature. For creep, uh, using the accelerated creep test, uh, the same method, D7361, uh, offers an opportunity to consider the effect of temperature in the creep uh, thickness reduction uh, of the geocomposite. So temperature can be addressed easily. It's a calculation, it's a, it's a test. You, have, you need to have the data, but it, it, it can be considered. Okay. Um, this is a design question. It, it's somewhat lengthy, but I think kind of timely with some, at least some projects I'm involved with. Do you have any thoughts on how to design a very shallow and long slope? There are a lot of impoundments with 2% grades and a slope of 1,000 feet plus 300 meters. It is almost impossible to design such a closure to not have a flow depth of greater than the thickness of the geocomposite. Um, is there a more practical consideration and you know some thoughts come to mind? Maybe we, you stack two composites or three composites to give enough capacity, but uh, go, go ahead, Eric. Yeah, I think uh, when you have such a long slope, uh, what I've seen in other design is to have uh, intermediate trenches. So after one, don't forget also that the rolls have a length. Uh, a, a roll of geocomposite has a finite length, let's say 100 meters. I, I don't know, you have to check with the specific manufacturers. But having, uh, playing with this length and making sure that you have a trench, uh, collect, a collector halfway, uh, 
collecting this liquid from the first part of the slope and then directing that uh, further down uh, through a parallel system, through a pipe. Uh, that cuts uh, the 1,000 feet length slope is going to be cut in several pieces. Uh, it can be three of, uh, let's say, four times 250 feet. And that makes the design much more realistic and much more stable because if you have a failure taking place, let's say you've made a mistake. Uh, instead, of, uh, instead of cutting at 250 feet, you should have cut at 200 feet. And you have a failure on the last 50 feet at least you don't have 1,000 feet of slope going down. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a safe and easy way to handle the problem, I think. Okay. Um, does the ISO method of testing covers, uh, of testing cover the determination of discharge capacity of the geocomposite, like a prefabricated vertical drain, in a kink condition? In other words, if, if the composite gets kinked in the field, uh, does it, do you, should you consider that in the testing? Okay, for prefabricated vertical drain, there is an ISO test method, which is ISO 18325, uh, which is specifically designed to address the testing issues. It has a, there is a similar ASTM standard, I think it's 6918. I don't know all my ASTM by heart, I'm sorry, nor ISO. Uh, but uh, it provides very specific guidance. The ISO was published like five or six years ago. Uh, it provides very specific guidance on how to address the kink condition. And uh, that, that is not covered at all in my presentation. Uh, for profitability, I, I would be very happy to have a discussion outside of this, uh, of this conversation uh, because it's very different. Uh, very different fish, very different objectives, a very different consequence of failure uh, in the sense that if you have a lower capacity, uh, flow capacity on the PVD, it's not affecting the stability of a structure as much as uh, may uh, a geocomposite like what we're discussing today. Uh, so uh, that's a discussion I would prefer to have uh, outside of this discussion, the one we have now. Okay. Um... We, we have many, many more questions, and I'll, we'll get to them in the podcast. Maybe I'll wrap up, Eric, with, with one more. You sort of touched on it in your presentation. What about the flow in the transverse direction? In a, in a large landfill cell, this is an important consideration for leachate collection, and you talked about flow parallel to rails and transverse or perpendicular to the rails. So how would you handle that in a large landfill cell? Okay, first thing for having some data on what is the actual capacity of a product in a lengthwise and trans transverse direction would be the very beginning. If the size and the shape of the project justifies uh, this kind of consideration, it will justify investing the $200 for a test uh, or whatever is the amount. Uh, so it would take by gathering data on transverse flow versus longitudinal flow and from there, adding that as an extra reduction factor, which can be design-related. Uh, the guidance that we have, uh, which are published by ISO or ASTM, they do not preclude to add more reduction factor. So you can, that's a, the, um, uh, it's a standard, it's a consensual document. It provides the minimum that you must have to make sure that the system is working. Uh, from there, you can add more reduction factor. It's a design by the engineer depending on the particular project. 
So that's how I would do it. Gather some data, and if uh, there is a risk to have a misalignment of a geocomposite to the slope, take it in consideration uh, by increasing the flow capacity requested or specifying a transverse direction flow. Great. Thank you, everybody, for attending. We will address the remaining questions in our podcast on Thursday. If you have additional questions, please send them to uh, me or Jen Miller or add them to the survey that will come out after the webinar. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for an excellent webinar. And the, the list of questions is very impressive. So you've generated quite a bit of discussion. Excellent. Uh, Thank you for that, and thank you for joining us from Montreal, Quebec. And everyone, thanks for attending, and we will see you next month for Andrew Mills' webinar. Thanks for being here. Thank you. See ya.